welcome back to another episode of Lighting the Pipes Noir, the podcast where I, Josh Taylor, in non-chronological fashion, discuss film noir from its formative, classical period of 1941 to 1960. In this episode, I will be reviewing Detour, produced and released in 1945 by Producers Releasing Corporation, or PRC for short. Detour was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer and starred Tom Neal and Anne Savage. Now, unlike our previous installments, Detour was not produced by a major studio. It is, it was, for all intents and purposes, a B-movie. Back then, B-movies were churned out in a similar manner as they are today, by a lower-tier studio on a small budget. Now, this is not to be confused with B-pictures, so here is the distinction. The major studios, particularly the big five of MGM, Paramount, RKO, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers, pursued a corporate scheme known as vertical integration. What this means is that the studios controlled the entire process of filmmaking, production, distribution, and exhibition. Yes, they controlled slash owned the theatrical chains. Theater owners had to play whatever they were given. Usually it was a single package consisting of an A picture and a B picture. A pictures were, of course, the marquee films, expensive in budget and in talent. The B pictures were of more modest budget and of a more modest talent. This forced package deal was known as blind booking, and it guaranteed that the majors would always make a profit. So fittingly, the U.S. government took Paramount Pictures to task for this. Paramount, in particular, was the worst culprit, and they were accused of running a monopoly and shut down completely. Well, in the sense of where they could no longer control exhibition. So there ended the scheme of vertical integration that had long been a part of the studio process. Now, these decrees, or paramount decrees, of 1948 were the first devastating blow against the studio system, even though it would last up until the late 1960s, when the Hayes Code was finally put to rest and the new Hollywood cinema began. Going back to the concept of the B-reel, or B-picture, in the 30s, these were the lower-budget westerns and musicals, the gangster films that, of course, made its regulars into stars, and the horror films. And in the 40s and 50s, this shifted over to another popular, growing genre that many of these major studio B-pictures were the ones that were later categorized as, and that's, of course, film noir. The mini-majors made B-pictures and film noirs as well, quite a few of them actually, and the mini-majors, just to list them, were essentially Columbia Pictures, Universal Pictures, and United Artists. So what of the Maltese Falcon and Laura? Well, they were considered noir, but they were also A-pictures with a big cast and a big budget, so they were the exception to the rule. But do you know who else made B-pictures? the lowest of the studios, such as Republic, Monogram, and Detour's own PRC. That's just a few of them. Together, they were commonly known as Poverty Row. Now, geographically, Poverty Row was located on Gower Street, where the modern Hollywood Walk of Fame reaches its terminus. In the heyday of the studio era, here stood the offices of these lesser studios, for in addition to film noir and melodramas, Poverty Row Studios produced ethnic films and special interest films. Name and niche, they had it. Uh, they even produced their own low-grade horror and sci-fi and westerns. But we don't really need to explore what Poverty Row was any more than we have to, because despite its lowly origins, Detour, our film in question, is considered a cult classic, as well as one of the greatest film noirs from that era. As a matter of fact... The story behind Detour and its production history, particularly concerning its cast and its enigmatic director, is a noir in itself.
Now, the web that I'm about to untangle for you started out as many films do, regardless of how prestigious the producer or studio, it began its life as a book. Detour's author, Martin Goldsmith, was no brunette, Kane, Hammett, or Woolrich, but his novel Detour, published in 1939, drew industry attention as the crime or noir phase was in full swing. Enter Leon Fromkiss, the studio head of PRC. He sent producer Martin Mooney with an offer to Goldsmith for the film rights. In between his writing, Goldsmith had bounced from job to job just to support himself. So if Hollywood was offering him something for his work, however meager it may be, however lowly a studio it may be that was making the offer, he was in no position to wait for a better one. So Goldsmith took Fromkus's dangling bait of his modest offer, plus the opportunity to write his own adaptation of his own screenplay. Meanwhile, high up in the ivory water tower of Warner Brothers, one of its contract players, John Garfield, had just finished reading Detour. So this puts us in late 1944. Garfield loved it, and prior to The Postman Always Rings Twice, he saw this as a vehicle that would continue to help his rise in stardom. So Garfield promptly slid the book across Jack Warner's desk, Jack Warner being the Warner Brothers studio head. Garfield painted a picture for Warner and the prospective team of producers. He would star, and they could pair him with, say, Anne Sheridan or Ida Lupino. Warner was tempted, but it amounted to nothing when he heard Fromkiss beat him to the punch. So Warner strong-armed Fromkiss with an offer of $25,000. So in today's value, that's about $420,000. Fromkiss, however seeing himself as the bell of the Hollywood ball in this brief instance, decided not to be the bell, more of a defiant Scarlett O'Hara, really, and smugly refused the offer. He called in favors, managing to get Columbia Pictures contract players Tom Neal and Ann Savage for the lead roles. In a later interview, Savage maintains that she was offered a 19-day shooting contract. More on Neal and Savage later. Fromkiss chose Lou Landers to direct the film. Now, calling Landers a veteran was an understatement. The man had crewed under D.W. Griffith and was working as an assistant director at Universal by the 1930s. Following that, worked for every major and minor studio in Hollywood as a director. But Fromkiss wanted Detour in the can as soon as possible. He had already put in collateral for the rights and the two leads he needed to use up every bit of the supposed $30,000 budget. He immediately knew the man for the job, so Lou Landers was out before he could begin, and Edgar G. Ulmer was in. So why Edgar G. Ulmer? Also, who is Edgar G. Ulmer? If you remember that 1929 German film, uh, Munchon a Sonntag, uh, People on Sunday, I talked about it in the Crisscross episode. It was a German-language melodrama. Uh, Billy Wilder had come up with the initial story, and Robert Siodmak and his brother Kurt had polished that off into a final screenplay. Fred Zinnemann, the future director of From Here to Eternity, High Noon, and A Man for All Seasons, handled the cinematography whilst The Killers and Crisscross director Robert Siodmak co-directed, with Edgar G. Ulmer. Most of these men would of course end up working in Hollywood and contributing greatly to the studio era and beyond. Ulmer, however, took a different path. By the time of the production of People on Sunday, Ulmer had worked in Europe and the United States since the early 1920s. He was born in September 1904 in Olmuk or Olmutz in Moravia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a place that is now located in the Czech Republic. But like all these emigre directors, Ulmer claimed birth in the cosmopolitan environs of Vienna. He had always considered himself as an Austrian. Though his work took him from Vienna to Berlin to eventually New York, back to Berlin, and finally to Hollywood, here he worked as both an actor and crew member for various theatrical productions and silent films. This was to foot the bill for his education, where he studied architecture and philosophy. He helped design sets for Max Reinhardt, the same Max Reinhardt who had made an apprentice out of Otto Preminger, of which you may recall back when we tackled Laura in a previous episode. Now, this work would eventually take him into the film industry, 
working under F.W. Murnau, whom he followed across the pond. He worked as a set designer for Murnau's silent epic, Sunrise. Now, Ulmer was a very enigmatic character, so despite interviews taken late in his life where he attests to working on the Fritz Lang productions of Metropolis and M, we must take those assertions with a grain of salt. Murnau, of course, was the famed director of the German expressionist horror masterpiece Nosferatu, and while there is no evidence to support Almer worked on that film as well, he was at some point taken under Murnau's wing. Now, he would learn how to light a set and utilize shadow to invoke terror and suspense, which of course became a staple of the horror genre. These he knew how to do quite well. So let's jump cut to after the production of People on Sunday. Weimar Germany was on the precipice of the Third Reich. Ulmer was Jewish. It was time to go. His first solo-directed film in North America was a two-reeler, 61-minute feature funded by the Canadian government on the dangers of venereal disease, and it was called Damage Lives. It was low budget, it was daring, but it did what it was supposed to do. He persevered and joined his fellow emigres in Hollywood, directing films for Universal Pictures. Now, Universal had been able to stay afloat in the early days of the Great Depression due to its low-budget tactic of zero stars and all-special-subject films. But most important to its survival was its perseverance to the horror genre. While the politically-connected MGM and Paramount's built-in affluence and cutthroat business sense, the rest of the major studios struggled during this time, especially after the expensive conversion from silent to sound technology. Each had to find their own way to adapt. So Carl Lemley Jr., head of production at Universal, came up with a master plan. Get Universal on board with sound. Do not fall into the financial trap of marquee big-budget productions, like they did with All Quiet on the Western Front, despite the Oscar wins. Instead, focus on making the moviegoers' night out a riveting experience. Special family programs, low-budget musicals, and horror. This proved successful for Universal, as we know. Dracula and Frankenstein changed how people thought about the genres outside of melodrama and westerns, so Lemley Jr. and his mogul father were happy to have someone with Almer's experience on board. Now, the prospects were looking good here. He was offered a contract at Universal as a director, and his first film, The Black Cat, would be an adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe classic, and it starred Universal's leading stars, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Dracula, and Frankenstein. Now, interestingly enough, the finished product is said to be a masterpiece of horror, showcasing a brilliant, unique visual style that dwarfed the German expressionist-influenced universal horror vehicles that came before it. Almer in full glory, with all the tools of production at his disposal, was a thing to see, and his superior use of tracking shots with low-key lighting, horror made into poetry, The Black Cat was a huge success for Universal, a truly exciting and lyrical work rife with foreboding fascist imagery that could have made Ulmer a staple in Hollywood. Could have. Ulmer, alas, fell in love. Her name was Shirley Alexander. She was the Black Cat's assigned script supervisor, a position known as a continuity or script girl back in the day. And while she reciprocated those feelings, Shirley had been married for over a year to Max Alexander, who was cousin to Carl Lemley Sr. Long story short, Uncle Carl ensured that Ulmer would never cross the threshold of a major for the rest of his life. And so by 1936, the Austrian wonderkin had to offer his services to the less-than-hallowed auspices of Poverty Row. His only consolation at the time was that Shirley Alexander, now Ulmer, was firmly by his side, working as a script supervisor for many movies to come. Aware of his skill, Poverty Row offered sanctuary. His first films with PRC were so-called ethnic films, Ukrainian, Yiddish, African-American language productions. This low-budget environment forced him to be inventive with the minimal resources at his hand, but it also gave him a sense of artistic freedom that he would never be able to wield at the majors, freedom to the extent of what the budget allowed. He began to build a reputation of cranking out small, yet quality melodramas despite being saddled by subatomic budgets, weak scripts, and no-name actors. Melodramas like Bluebeard or gangster and noir pictures like Club Havana. He also produced them swiftly. 
Bluebeard, for example, took him only six days to shoot. So when Detour began pre-production, Leon Fromkiss had his director, Edgar G. Ulmer, the so-called king of PRC, at the top of his list. Ulmer's task was pure alchemy, to make something out of virtually nothing. Yes, they had the rights to Goldsmith's novel, but they would not be able to provide a faithful adaptation with the limited resources at their disposal. So first to be reckoned with was Detour's original script. The problem was it was too faithful to the book, which presented issues in terms of adapting to the story within budget. More importantly, the Breen Office, the governing censorship body of the Motion Picture Production Code, which enforced the Hayes Code, did not care for Goldsmith's book. There could be no ambiguity of right and wrong in the final treatment. Almer divided the two main story threads of protagonist Al Roberts and his girlfriend Sue. Al on the road from New York to reach Sue in Los Angeles, and Sue experiencing Me Too-ish misadventures in Tinseltown. Fromkus aimed for a picture that could be shown multiple times a day under a 90-minute runtime. Standard MO for, pro- for Poverty Row. So, Ulmer was unleashed upon Goldsmith's 144-page treatment. When he was finished it, he was, it was approximately half that length. Gone was the Sue element. She was relegated to a MacGuffin for the protagonist, a supporting role, and all of her drama was cut from the original script. The road trip element would take center stage for the story, a road trip and a psychological head trip. Everything else would come together as principal photography began, or so that was the result. Now, with Almer in play, let's move on to the next crucial component of Detour's cult legacy, its leads. Tom Neal was to quote Eddie Muller in Dark City, a poor man's Clark Gable. Born in Evanston, Illinois in January 1914, Neal came from a well-to-do upper-middle-class family. His father was a banker, and his uncle was a renowned stage actor of his day. Raised in a mansion in Chicago, Neal would go on to attend Northwestern University, studying mathematics while taking part in the drama club when he could. He was known for his athleticism, boxing in particular. He had quite the amateur career, but the acting bug bit him firmly, and he dropped out, returning to Chicago, where he took part in summer stock productions before reaching New York City and Broadway, where he debuted in 1935. He worked, but did not make a name for himself, aside from being the fledgling Broadway star engaged to ex-Zigfield Follies girl Inez Norton. She was over 10 years his senior. Neil was 21 at the time, and she was also the ex-girlfriend of the late New York City gangster, Arnold Rothstein. For those who watched Boardwalk Empire, yes, that very same Arnold Rothstein. In real life, Rothstein was of the old guard hoods who ran New York City in the Roaring Twenties. He even rigged the World Series. His personal vice was gambling and booze, and he died gutshot on the streets of New York without a penny to his name. What was hothead rich boy actor Tom Neal getting himself into? Luckily, Neil's banker dad used all his paternal persuasion to get Neil to end the engagement. Alas, that would not be the last time that Tom Neal would be associated with crime. Just of a different sort. Stepping off Broadway, when he had his chance, Neil's first film was Out West with the Hardys, one of the many MGM Andy Hardy serials that starred a young Mickey Rooney. You know, that guy who unfortunately uh, ruins a good portion of Breakfast at Tiffany's. I will say no more. It funded Neil's wild lifestyle, one full of violence and womanizing and drinking, aka stuff that he would do between jobs. He soon found himself in Los Angeles, appearing in low-budget productions for the minor majors or major minors, what, what have you, Columbia, etc. On the other side of the street, we have Ann Savage, who in real life was anything but. Bernice Maxine Leon was born in February 1921 in Columbia, South Carolina, but as a military brat, she moved from base to base across the U.S. until her father, an officer in the U.S. Army, died when she was only four years old. Bernice and her mother moved to Los Angeles. Her mother paid their bills selling jewelry in the so-called Jewelry District of Los Angeles, which was just around the corner where dozens of movie houses offered young Bernice an escape from the everyday. This was the famous Broadway District of Los Angeles, part of the original historic downtown core of the city its main commercial thoroughfare and entertainment district from the 1910s all the way up to the Second World War. This is the world Bernice Lyon, later Anne Savage, grew up in. 
When Bernice turned 17, she had her first screen test at MGM. At this point, when she was finishing high school, she worked odd jobs to help out her mother, one of them being a bowling instructor. Well, with her first screen test miles away from the wooden floors of the bowling alley in which she worked, she auditioned with that day with a bunch of nobodies, people like Lana Turner, Deanna Durbin, and Judy Garland. Small world. But she didn't get the role. But fate works in mysterious ways because she soon found herself training at the Max Reinhardt workshop on Sunset Boulevard. To be fair, many did back in the day, but it works for my kismet narrative that she would eventually be working with certain someone. For this was the same Max Reinhardt who had among his apprentices Otto Preminger and Edgar G. Ulmer. Soon Reinhardt had her change her name from Bernice to Anne and Lion to Savage, because Lion equals Savage? Hmm. But the, the attractive blonde was offered a screen test at Fox thanks to Anne's agent, who would later become her future husband, because Hollywood, and a dab of it, of it being a different time. Needless to say, the studio already had enough blondes. Anne chose the other option, a screen test with Columbia Pictures, and was awarded with the contract the same studio that was getting into musicals in the early 40s, particularly with their exciting new redhead, Rita Hayworth. Like Savage, that wasn't Rita's real name either. As for good old Rita, well, I'll be talking about Rita Hayworth sometime in the future, so stay tuned. Like Hayworth, though, Anne would have her hair reddened as for the 1943 film Footlight Glamour, but most of the time she played to her natural blonde color. She was pushed as the blonde Columbia Pictures equivalent of Warner's Oomph Girl, and Sheridan. If you compare the two actresses side by side, you can, you can kind of see it, especially since the photos are black and white, so you can't really see that Anne was a ginger or a blonde. To that point, Anne was well aware of her beauty, and she put her beauty to the test for the World War II home front, and using her physical wares, she sold war bonds. She easily became one of the top pinup models of her day, if you have seen any of these pinups, particularly the Esquire magazine photo shoot by the legendary George Hurrell, you can see how easily she brought that certain va-va-voom this side of Betty Grable. If or when you see her as Vera in Detour, you may receive a certain visual whiplash in comparison. Her inevitable casting as Detour's voracious Vera can also be foreshadowed in her time working side-by-side -side Howard Hawks' screwball spitfire queen Rosalind Russell on the film What a Woman. Here, Savage witnessed the most ruthless and intimidating studio head of the day, Harry Cohn of Columbia Pictures, getting cut down, read totally emasculated by Rosalind Russell in a verbal tirade. <laughs> she was not Cohen's Curl Friday, but Anne found it well Savage and took this in. Savage's work eventually crossed paths with Tom Neal and Klondike Kate in 1943. They starred in another film, Two Man Submarine and The Unwritten Code in 1944. Their off-camera professional relationship was tepid at best, two different personalities who clashed all the time, but managed to get the job done at the end of the shooting day. Detour would be their next collaboration. There has been debate on how many days it took to film Detour, as well as what its actual budget was. One trusted source gives it at $117,000, another close to 100000 The popular number in the past was 30000 but many scholars lean to it costing somewhere close to the former, marketing and the rights of the novel included. Ulmer embellishing things in his later years hasn't helped much uh, to maintain an accurate accounting. He once bragged he shot Detour in six days, but the consensus is that it was filmed approximately in 14 to 19 days. And going back what Anne Savage herself said, 19 days coming from that is that she was contracted 19 to 19 days of shooting and that she was there for every one of those days. The condensed screenplay and tiny, shooting, and tiny shooting schedule allowed Ulmer to play with the budget as much as possible. The entire film was shot 15 miles from the PRC backlot in Palmdale, California. Pre-production to post-production ran from March to November 1945. Working behind the lens as a director of photography was Benjamin H. Klein, an industry veteran with a large quantity of output dating back to the silent era. He was a company man and would follow Ulmer's orders. 
Ulmer had full control on the set and oversaw all aspects of production, including post. He and editor George McGuire would work together as Ulmer prioritized telling a good story, the best they could, over continuity. With 19 days of shooting, pickups, and all other crucial aspects crammed into the allotted time frame, Ulmer turned lemons into lemonade. He would flip the film negative, giving the illusion of the protagonist going in one direction and flip it again to portray the opposite direction, all without having to reshoot the scene. His experience in Germany and in Hollywood, combined with his 9-to-5 work with PRC, allowed him to MacGyver detour when he had no more reel to play with. The opening credits of Detour lists the music composer as simply Erdodi, but his full name is Leo Erdodi. Erdodi, like Miklos Rosa, hailed from Hungary and studied musical composition in Germany. But unlike his fellow immigrés, he landed in Hollywood rather early, 1921 to be exact, where he immediately found work as a composer. He eventually became the key music man for PRC, working with Ulmer almost exclusively on the films Bluebeard, Strange Illusion, and Detour. Despite his somewhat lowly position in Poverty Row, Erdodi had steady work and was even nominated for an Oscar for his work on Minstrel Man. His score for Detour blends traditional thriller scoring of the time with ironic counterpoint. Vera's theme, for example, is quite sympathetic and romantic in contrast to, well, <laughs> Vera. It was welded to an auditory landscape of ambient background music and sound effects. Now, the same goes for the production design. Ulmer, again, full control. Edward C. Jewell used the PRC backlot, such as it was, combined with on-location, filming where they could, when they could, pinching pennies. Even Ulmer himself utilized the prop car to drive from location to location, a customized 1941 Continental V12 convert convertible with bolted-on rear-wheel well covers. Marketing was employed, such as it was, six-sheet posters, standees, hand-drawn portraits of the characters, and an orchestral of the Bing Crosby number, I Can't Believe You're in Love With Me, for the jukeboxes. And so, as you can see, that despite this being a low-budget production, it was essentially put together the same way as any major studio production, just on a smaller scale, but using the studio system perfected by Irving J. Thalberg more than 15 years before. Now you're probably wondering, how did this Poverty Row feature become the call classic that it is today? What did the public make of it at the time? I'll get to that, but before we complete the history segment, it is time for a little plot summary. So if you've seen the film, great. Enjoy my breakdown. If you haven't, well, go watch it. Or not. But be warned, there are spoilers beyond this point. See you on the other side. It wasn't much of a club, really. You know the kind. A joint where you could have a sandwich and a few drinks and run interference for your girl on the dance floor. first meet Al Roberts walking in the dark on a deserted desert road, where he manages to hitch a ride to a diner outside of Reno, Nevada. He is quietly enjoying his coffee at the bar until the on-site jukebox plays a familiar tune. It's an orchestral version of 1926 crooner, I Can't Believe You're In Love With Me. It triggers something painful in Al's soul, so much that he yells for it to stop. Both the patron and the owner give him what for. It's a free country, after all. And Al relents, diving deeper into his coffee cup and into the past. His mental time traveling takes us to the Break O'Don Club somewhere in New York City. He is a professional piano player at the cafe, playing a gig with his torch singer fiance, Sue. Their opening number? Yeah, you guessed it. The aforementioned, I can't believe you're in love with me. All seems swell until walking through the fog enveloped streets of what is supposed to be downtown Manhattan on a shoestring budget, Sue drops a bomb on their marriage plans. She is moving to Los Angeles. She is going to get a crack at Hollywood. Al isn't thrilled about this, as you can guess, but Sue is tired of counting dimes with their talented but financially unfulfilling act. 
so Sue takes off, and Al is left to wallow in his pride and self-pity until after some time he finally caves. You can feel the frustration and anxiety in his finger dancing. So he gives her a call, assuring that he is on his way, but with little cash on him, it might take some time. So we get a cross-country hitchhiking montage all the way to Arizona, where fate arrives in the form of a 1941 Lincoln Continental convertible driven by one Charlie Haskell. Haskell seems decent at first, allowing Al some solitude until he needs to get some pills from his glove department. He asks Al to hold the wheel as he medicates, prompting the shooting of the bull. By that I mean conversation. Charlie seems in the dough, a professional bookie professing an aptitude for calling horse races in his favor since he was in his early 20s. He too is on the way to Los Angeles. He has a tip on a particular horse where he could possibly make a killing. Al notices that Haskell has scars on his face and hands, deep claw marks like he was mauled by something quite savage. A woman, Haskell reveals. We are painted a picture, a crude picture, that this woman was hitchhiking and thereby, through Haskell's point of view, she is up for anything. Haskell got fresh with his female passenger, who retaliated in kind. He tells Al he let her loose on the side of the road and went on his merry way. Lovely. We then get the story behind another scar, this one on his arm. Turns out Charlie had been on the run since he was 15. He and his friend were messing around with his father's Franco-Russian sabers, and that's all fun and games until someone gets their arm cut, slashed open, and someone loses an eye. Not wanting to confront his father, Charlie packed his things and headed for the open road, never looking back. They stopped at a roadside diner. Haskell offers to foot the bill. After some good grub the likes Al has not had in a long time, Haskell flirts with the waitress and they are on the road again, with Haskell getting some shut-eye in the passenger seat and Al taking the wheel. When the rain starts to pour, Al attempts to wake Haskell so they can put down the canopy, but Haskell is unresponsive. Al pulls over to the side of the road to check on Haskell. He opens the door and Haskell falls out, his head landing on a rock. As audience members along for the ride on this suddenly hellish road trip, are we to assume that Haskell had some heart condition and passed away in his sleep? Or did the fall from the passenger side to the desert floor do him in courtesy of a big, unfortunately placed rock? It matters not, because Haskell is dead. Right on cue, the voiceover narration that threads the film communicates Al's moral panic, and panic he does. This may sound like an understatement, but this is quite the logistical and moral predicament for Al realizes that no one would believe his story. No evidence to back up his innocence aside from his own words, the fact that he is dressed like a drifter compared to the late Haskell's trendy threads. People would, as they do, draw the wrong conclusions, especially when there are facts to support him being guilty. Al decides to pose as Haskell, taking his clothes and dragging the body into the desert. As the rain falls, he disposes of the body and returns to the car in Haskell's duds. A single night in a motel offers no escape from his conscience. In the morning, he goes through Haskell's suitcase. Apparently, Haskell was shadier than he let on. A correspondence reveals he is on his way to his father in Los Angeles, posing as someone else to take the old man's inheritance. A confidence man? Al suddenly doesn't feel as bad for Haskell. In the morning, he is on the road again. He reaches the California border and nervously makes his way through the police cordon, posing as Haskell. Once past the stop, he pulls into a gas station to fill up his tank. A young woman is there, a woman he describes as being dumped from a freight train. She is trying to hitch a ride. He offers. She accepts. To his future chagrin, <laughs> even worried about being accused and convicted of murder, Al is such a nice guy, a paragon of chivalry. <laughs> if only he knew. Her name is Vera, and even in the first few miles of which... She has not revealed her true colors, she is showing some major attitude. She is pricklier than a cactus, and that's nothing compared to when she wakes from her brief nap and accuses Al of murdering Charlie Haskell. What did you do with the body? She erupts like Vesuvius. You see, she was the girl, the deliverer of the claw marks. She sheds no tears for Haskell, though, but moves in on her prey. She browbeats Al with utter ferocity, putting all femme fatales to shame. 
She doesn't want to send him to the gas chamber, but she will if she has to, if he doesn't play her game. They reach Los Angeles. He is so close to the end of his journey. Somewhere Sue is waiting, but Vera has them get a dump of a hotel room. The plan is to sell Haskell's car, switching the registry rather than abandoning it completely and getting the cops in a tizzy straight to Al, the guy who poses Haskell at the border. Vera hopes to cop a happy sum from the deal. They commiserate over alcohol. Vera is a chaotic mess, both bullying and lusting after Al, besieging his mental and physical defenses. Al is immune to her seduction, but we can feel Vera's frustration and contempt for Al growing and growing despite how easy a mark he is. Al even tries to call Sue, dragging the phone in the room from the shelf by her bedroom door to the table. It's a long cord, one of those things that could get tangled up there quite easily. He relents on the call, however, hoping that the deal goes through tomorrow and he can part ways with Vera and return to Sue. The deal goes off without a hitch. 1850, just shy of the $2,000 Vera was hoping for, until it doesn't. The car dealer wants the insurance information, which is missing from the registration papers. Luckily, Vera shows up, telling him not to sign the papers, and they shove off. Pulling into a drive through restaurant, Vera reveals a newspaper article concerning a Charles Haskell Sr., a millionaire on his deathbed with a blurb underneath focusing on the old man's search for his long-lost son, Charles Jr., I mean, the Franco-Russian sabers kind of gave it away that Haskell's pop was affluent, so Al is wise as to what happens next. Vera wants him to pose as the son and claim the inheritance. Al refuses. Vera tries to wear him down. The two play cards as they while away the time in the hotel room, a routine they will adopt day after day until they have notice of Charles Sr. kicking the bucket. Vera presses the plan, but Al is adamant. No way. Vera drinks more and becomes further unhinged. She coughs something fierce, giving away that she's going the way of Doc Holliday or Bronte sister heroine. She's tubercular, a lunger. She doesn't have much of a future. A fortune like that from Haskell Sr. would make her final days comfortable. She also doesn't have much to lose, and yet she's completely unsympathetic. Whereas Al has quite a lot to lose. She presses again and he refuses again. Intoxicated, she forgets the scheme and becomes enraged how ungrateful he is to her and returns to her main threat, ratting him out to the police. Fed up, Al dares her, hoping for her to realize that simply it won't do. But Vera is plastered and vindictive. A terrible combination. She reaches for the telephone, calling his bluff. He manhandles her and she feigns fragility after being thrown into an armchair. She doesn't like him. She can't get over that he hurt her arm. She is suddenly childlike petulant first and then pitiable as she asks for him to open the window. It's getting hot in there, and not that kind of hot. Al, ever the gentleman, does so despite Vera claiming otherwise. She's done with him. She takes this opportunity to run for the phone, drunkenly wrapping the cord around her as she runs into her room and shuts the door. She collapses onto the bed, the cord tangled around her neck as she fights sleep. Meanwhile, a frightened Al reaches for the cord and pulls as hard as he can in his attempt to cut the line, yelling at her while doing so. The cord tightens under the door and across the floor. Al is on his knees trying to tear it. And then, silence. He calls her name. No answer. He opens the door to the bedroom. Vera is lying on her back, head dangling over the side of the bed, the cord ensnaring her throat. This one he actually did kill, albeit accidentally, but that ain't going to cut it. Goodbye, Vera. Goodbye, Sue. Goodbye, happiness. Al doesn't actually flee the scene of the crime, more like resignedly walks away to meet his fate. We are back at the diner that song is playing. He finishes his coffee and steps out into the night. As he trundles down the darkened road, we learn from the voiceover that after they found Vera's body, they pinned the murder on her husband, Charles Haskell, who seems to have disappeared, leaving his dead wife and his car behind. So perhaps he can return to his beloved Sue? Alas, no. He couldn't be with Sue with the death of two people hanging over his head like that, despite that we, the audience, know he's innocent. Sort of. But tell that to the California Highway Patrol who just picked him up before the credits start to fall. Al Roberts enters the back of that cruiser, as if he has been waiting for it a long time for that final ride.
trying to forget what happened and wonder what my life might have been if that car of Haskell's hadn't stopped. But one thing I don't have to wonder about, I know. Someday a car will stop to pick me up that I never thumbed. Yes, fate or some mysterious force can put the finger on you or me for no good reason at all. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. Detour on completion was 69 minutes. If you found the ending tacked on, it was. One of the edicts of the Motion Picture Production Code, or Hayes Code, was that crime doesn't pay, and a character cannot get away from the long yet inevitable arm of the law. So the moment when Al leaves the Reno diner and walks down that dark road, we get his voiceover, followed by the police pulling him over, followed by the end title insert. I think just leaving Al's face more ambiguous, his mind lost in his own moral shortcomings, and the anxiety derived from that would have been better to end on, but old Hollywood is going to old Hollywood. Also, it was one of those requirements that the Breen office laid down to Ulmer and Goldsmith, and they would not be able to produce the film without kowtowing to this demand. So they did. And Detour was released, and it was quite a hit. It received positive reviews from the Los Angeles Times, Variety, and The Hollywood Reporter. Moviegoers ate it up as well. An exhibition expanded from the usual poverty row haunts, that is the grindhouse cinemas, to the main movie palaces. Other critics chimed in, calling it fair, but acknowledging how well-structured the narrative was despite its other shortcomings. Majority of the reviews praised Anne Savage's performance. Today, Detour is lauded with unanimous praise, Ulmer has become a B-movie legend, and Anne Savage's Vera is held up as a paragon of the noir femme fatale. As for Tom Neal, the poor man's Clark Gable, well, he acquired a different legacy. Prior to Detour, he was already known for his reckless lifestyle and volatile temperament. This continued into the 1950s, when Neal had an affair with his female equivalent, Barbara Payton. Payton, an actress, lived recklessly, drank and did a fair share of drugs. Her and Neil were a toxic power couple. When her fiancé, actor Franchot Tone, confronted Neil on their front lawn, Neil beat Tone to an inch of his life, fracturing his skull. Tone made it through intensive care, and they married for 53 days when she ran back to Neil. Tone filed for divorce in 1952 on grounds of adultery. The crazy couple got engaged, but less than a year, they were sick of each other and cut the cord. Neil married again and took himself and his wife Patricia Fenton to Palm Springs to sober up and presumably get away from it all. He got into landscaping. They had a son, but Patricia succumbed to cancer a year later. Neil mourned her and married again in 1961 to Gail Bennett, a receptionist, in a shotgun wedding in Las Vegas. On April 2, 1961, Bennett's body was found on her couch with the cloth covering her face, a single gunshot wound to the back of her head. Neil was charged with murder, but during his defense confessed that he accused Bennett of cheating on him and that she drew a 45 millimeter pistol right in his face. A struggle ensued and she was shot point blank in the back of her head. Prosecution aimed for the death penalty, but certain ambiguities argued by the defense convinced the jury to bring it down to manslaughter. Neil was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison for involuntary manslaughter. Having served six he was paroled and returned to his landscaping business. He was found dead of a heart attack by his son, Tom Jr., in 1972. Incidentally, Tom Neal Jr. pursued acting, eerily playing Al Roberts in a 90s TV adaptation of Detour. And Savage, meanwhile, lived off Detour for years to come, becoming a cult icon outside of her pinup status. With her agent, Bert Darmond, who became her second husband, she had a relatively happy marriage and kept out of trouble until his death in 1969. She moved back to Los Angeles, where her mother lived, and decided to become a pilot. She received her license in 1979. She never again got a meaty role like Vera, but kept up with Detour's rising cult status. As the film premiered on television for the first time, or at a screening in the 70s when film studies was all the rage in academia, 
And she even stood with Shirley, Ulmer's widow, at a Detour tribute screening for the director. Her career had a late revival in 2007 when she appeared in My Winnipeg, directed by Canadian indie filmmaker Guy Madden. It was a surrealist film, as was Madden's style. A Canadian David Lynch would be the way to describe him. The film was about his life growing up in Winnipeg, and Savage played his mother. Madden wanted an actress that could scare even the likes of Bette Davis. I am paraphrasing, but who better than the actress who played Vera as a scary mother figure? If she didn't have fans before, she accrued many because of her performance in My Winnipeg. The film was critically acclaimed and won numerous prizes at film festivals. Anne did her best to keep up, but after a few strokes over the years, she passed away in December 2008 at the age of 87. Ulmer would go on to work with PRC, but Detour released him from Lemley family blackballing that he was allowed to direct the United Artists picture Carnegie Hall in 1947, a drama about just that. He also directed Strange Woman and Roofless in 1948. Strange Woman is known for its Haiti Lamar performance and is considered, outside of Detour, one of his best films. That didn't stop him from low-budget fare like The Man from Planet X and his last film, The Cavern. He died of a stroke in 1972. His loyal wife Shirley was later interred next to him at the Hall of David Mausoleum. Their daughter, Ariane, worked diligently to help produce the 4K restoration of Detour in 2017, which was released by Criterion on Blu-ray in 2019. Ulmer, who had never had a chance to stand tall with his People on Sunday crew, arguably created a far more enigmatic and exciting legacy for himself. It's now time to light the proverbial pipe and put Detour to the test. There are three categories which I rate each out of five points. Story, acting, and atmosphere. For a total of 15 possible points. So, let's look at the story. For a film under 70 minutes, it is very well paced. Every scene is significant and critical to the story. There is literally no filler in this film. And there shouldn't be, in a film like this, a B-movie with a limited budget. The limitations of this budget demand this, of course, but the story itself doesn't need to be longer than this to accomplish what it's set out to do. It's bookended with the diner sequences, where the hard-boiled narrator trope is then stretched out to a confession of that of a troubled and guilty soul. Once we get to the New York nightclub after the opening sequence, we get a taut narrative with quick scenes that reverberate with pathos thanks to the editing, writing, acting, and cinematography. Nothing is wasted in these scenes. Despite being low budget and a few moments throughout that call attention to that, i.e. fog in the streets, the flipping of the negative on the highway, the stripped down look at some of the sets, the less than stellar rear projection, the poverty row stable of shooting on location, and the story and characters boosted by strong performances allow us to travel to the world of the film without breaking immersion, just as if it was a big studio picture. In the past, the film noir protagonist had some connection to organized crime, whether it was a private eye or a thug with a heart of gold or a gambler, and so on. They are morally compromised individuals as a result of the world they inhabit. With Al Roberts, he is a talented musician, playing respectable gigs. His wife has more ambition than he does, and so he takes the fateful road trip to be with his girl. He is not a gambler, not a killer, not a detective, just a guy who wants to be happy. It's only his panicked responses to the situations he finds himself that digs him deeper into moral ambiguity. He is more of a Hitchcock hero than a noir hero. He is his own worst enemy. His only vice is bad luck and a slight handicap in judgment. The story is framed by his guilty conscience, and we as an audience can't help but feel sorry and pity for him, as it's clear if we are to believe his take on events presented to us that his only crime was his lack of judgment. It's clear the morality of the time is pegging him as being a coward and not trusting the law to find the truth, and that's what the Hayes office and the movie industry wants us to feel. The story flowed from beginning to end, Al's journey showing him as an artist. In a way, the writing and Neil's performance emasculates Al Roberts, so today we may view an artistic soft figure like Al Roberts as sympathetic, but I can see a post-war audience, we are talking literally post-war, November 1945 after all, finding him rather craven and weasley, and not in control, doing all this to get to his woman who clearly wears the pants in the relationship. 
At least that's the perspective that I can see attributed to the character in 1945. Do we as modern audiences sympathize with Vera at first? Gathering what Haskell told us about her, he put some fast moves on her and caused her to scratch him up. So not once is Vera physically aggressive to Al. She's all bark and not bite. So one wonders how mistreated she was by other men and Haskell for her to end up the way that she did. Goldsmith and Ulmer leave this ambiguous, but I am sure a contemporary audience found her utterly repulsive and she was portrayed as she was written. But I feel that many people over time, myself included, read Al and Vera as complex, flawed individuals, and that is why the story resonates so strongly, because there is something relatable about them. But the Breen office demands its pound of flesh. Which is too bad, because a then-subversion of the usual trope going back to the social realism of the gangster pictures in the 30s or the few film noirs released since 1941, the message of crime does not pay, would have been refreshingly ambiguous if the somewhat innocent Al Roberts quote-unquote, got away with it, instead of suddenly being picked up in the end. Again, the Breen office got what it wanted, and I take off half a point because it was the one thing that irked me as a viewer. PRC, and by extension Edgar G. Ulmer, had a dutiful editor in George McGuire. He piggybacks on Ulmer's negative and adds a bass rhythm of dissolves, wipes, and match-on actions that enhance the kinetic journey Ulmer had already started. He meets Ulmer beat for beat, connecting one frame to the other, and never leaving a gap in momentum. My final mark for story is four and a half out of five. Acting. Tom Neal was solid. He wasn't too hammy by the acting conventions of the time and conveyed a gentle soul, albeit who was also a pushover and a sap. For the story he was given, he played the part perfectly. He doesn't have that presence we are familiar with, more of a Burt Lancaster part, but being played by way of Alicia Cook Jr. There is a sensitive aspect that, maybe too sensitive to the world he has fallen into. A Lancaster or a Mitchum couldn't be browbeaten by the likes of Anne Savage's Vera, but Neil was. Actually, I think the former would also lose a glare match to Vera. But back to our lead. Knowing what a passionate and violent man Neil was in real life indicates how such performance like this could repress his true nature. Maybe too repressing? I haven't seen at this time any other performances of Tom Neal, so is this the, his character type, or did he get the strong jaw, tough guy roles as well? One thing he does well is act with his eyes. Several times, Ulmer closes in on Al's face, lighting only his eyes around the shadows, and you can see the sadness and desperation in them, as well as the guilt his character is feeling. Is this great naturalistic acting on Neal's part, or perhaps even a subconscious way to project the guilt for actions in his own life? Maybe a bit of both. Regardless, it enhances the portrayal, and it's haunting. Anne Savage. To quote film historian Noah Eisenberg, Anne Savage doesn't arrive until half an hour into the film, but when she does, she puts the rest of the film in a headlock until she dies. Look, Anne Savage was a stunning woman, but when we first meet Vera, you can see her fixed snarl from a mile away, that greasy updo that looks like it was covered in dirt and sap. It took basic makeup techniques to transform Savage into Vera. Niels Roberts can't get a word in. Every bark of dialogue from Vera is either a challenge, an accusation, or an insult. When Al starts to talk to defend himself, it's a machine gun retort of, shut up, and a baldly worded, I don't like you. Then her mood swings as it clears that she has sexual desire for Al and can't quite get that he's not turned on by this or that fact that he hasn't forgotten about Sue. Savage never gives in to smoldering, but she bounces between nasty and vicious, sarcastic and cynical. She makes hints that she's into him like a cat batting a toy. I will say that I am doing my best to avoid anamorphosizing her, but I do read some lust between the lines and I think Savage plays her this way. A woman who will say anything will reduce you to a speck of dust and then pull you back up because she has you in her clutches and wants to play, but will push and push. Vera even has a sense of vanity. Before they go to the car dealership, Vera glams herself up, her dialogue giving the feeling that she was hoping Al would comment on how good she looks, which she does. It feels Omer had a set course with Vera and Savage knew the route, but when the scene demanded it, Savage flawlessly switches gears and reveals layers to Vera in the subtlest way possible. Savage's performance is both entertaining and terrifying, yet you feel sorry for her, no matter how much she and Ulmer try to make you hate her. If that was their intention, for this alone, she has great chemistry with Neil. A more physically present and confident male lead, a Burt Lancaster, could have diminished Savage's ferocity, but Neil's Al gives in to her because she is the evil harpy of fate. 
Additional thespian props go out to Ed McDonald for his portrayal of Charles Haskell Jr. He comes off amicable, but there is an oozing of sleaze coming from his fine clothes and car upholstery. You can see how Al lets him take the lead, and you get hints how he and Vera were some diabolical conman team blazing their way across America until they had a falling out. The rest of the cast, including Claudia Drake as Sue Harvey, Esther Howard as Diner Waitress, and so many others in this film, did more than serviceable work. Never was there a feeling of someone not giving their all in their roles. Each character seemed to have dimension. In the end, it's a challenge to give a fair shake to acting quality in a production such as this. Some of these actors may not have access to acting coaches or the experience required to feel these roles, but I never got the sense of that for Detour. So I will say, I found the acting style and quality no different than what I've encountered for a large budget studio film of this time, or even any time. I do think that Savage is clearly the breadwinner in the acting category, helping the overall rating go from a solid four, given the pedigree of the film, to a four and a half out of five. Atmosphere. I heard one critic say about Detour that it makes you want to take a shower after watching it. I can't think of any better way to capture the feel and aesthetic of Detour. Everything feels lived in, grimy, dirty as the story demands, but there's a beauty to the camera work, to the editing, to the music and production design. First of all, Ulmer's expressionist background shows itself majestically and efficiently. The zoom in on the coffee cup in the foreground and the pan and zoom to the jukebox so we can dissolve to a nightclub in New York City, creating a sense of being out of space and time. Something so well conveyed but on so limited a budget. If we really want to talk German expressionism, look no further than the shot of Sue singing on stage during Al's fever dream with giant shadows and musicians towering above her. Or how the diner environs darken around Al as he reminisces, the light only on his eyes, the window to his soul. For such a limited production, every prop, every fog machine, every shadow creeping on the dingy hotel room, every set or useful on-location shot, all within a few miles of the PRC lot, all of it never wasted and utilized to its full extent. Erdodi's musical score is but another instrument in Almer's small toolbox. It uses source music for a narrative effect with the I can't believe you're in love with me motif, but it's just as dramatically and thematically cognizant as something written by Max Steiner, servicing the film narrative and polishing some of the grime with a little harmony every now and then. In the writing profession, particularly in screenwriting and the film industry as a whole, less is more, and nothing can be better said about Detour in this respect. Five out of five for Atmosphere. Tallying these categories together gives Detour a final score of 14 out of 15. So that's my review of Detour. If you're interested in learning more about Detour or Edgar G. Ulmer or Anne Savage or Tom Neal, the Criterion Collection restoration of Detour has the 2004 documentary Edgar G. Ulmer, The Man Off Screen, which is pretty great. It's laden with interviews from Peter Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, John Landis, Roger Corman, Wim Wenders, Anne Savage, and Ulmer's daughter, Ariane. It's a pretty great look at what Poverty Row and working on the margins of Hollywood was like. Also of interest on the Criterion is the mini-documentary on the 4K restoration. Very fascinating and exciting how they were able to bring a B-movie from 1945 back to life. You can also check out Ulmer's other films like The Black Cat or The Man from Planet X. Eddie Muller's Dark City, always a great recommendation from me, has some great passages on Detour and Ulmer, where I got some of my research from and, not, and some not-so-great details about Tom Neal, not to mention the aforesaid documentaries from The Criterion. If you like this episode or have some facts to share about Detour or Ulmer, please comment on the Lighting the Pipes Instagram page, which will keep you up to date with LTP Noir and Lighting the Pipes in general, as we will be dropping a new book review very soon. So until the next time, stay safe, but don't be afraid to venture into the dark, because with this genre we call noir, that's when it gets interesting. For Lighting the Pipes Noir, this is Josh Taylor, signing off. Thank you.